The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there's a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. I'm Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host. And Big Beacon is a, move, move, is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. You can find out more about the show at bigbeacon.org and, and follow live tweeting of the show at hashtag bigbeaconradio. Our first segment is sponsored by the book that is transforming higher education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at wholenewengineer.org. It's not just for engineers anymore. And today, um, we're pleased to have with us a special guest and former schoolmate and and uh, and still friend uh, Stephanie Forrest uh, from the University of New Mexico. Welcome to the show, Steph. Thank you so much, Dave. It's it's um, nice nice to be talking with you. Yeah, it is, and uh, it's, it's been a while since we've talked. But I um, and uh, I I noticed that you were giving a nice talk about uh, our our. Um, Common uh, advisor John Holland at the recent uh, Genetic and Evolutionary Computation Conference, and I thought some of the themes might dovetail with the the show. But before we jump into all that, uh, we like to like our listeners to get to know our guests on the show. And and so Stephanie, you're a professor, you're a research in complex adaptive systems. Um, you've been an academic and nonprofit uh, leader, and so. Um, You've done a lot of stuff in your career, and, and so just curious, what were some of the key early influences in your life that uh, put you on your current path? Well, I guess um, everyone is influenced by their parents, and I certainly was. My parents, were not, they were not professional academics, but they valued reading, critical thinking, and intellectual pursuits, and you know, when I think back, I think that did have a huge influence on the direction I went. Um, and that probably influenced my choice to go to St. John's College for my undergraduate degree, which is, I don't know how familiar every, your readers, your listeners are to, with, with St. John's, but it's, it's a very unusual, integrated, interdisciplinary, four-year non-elective program where you read the great books. And for me, I think the thing that had the biggest impact, we read the books both in literature and philosophy, but also in math and science. And so that certainly reinforced my um, sense that the intellectual life has value. And I think what really set me on the path, two things there set me on the path 
to um, computer science and and the kind of research I've done. And the first was um, in my junior year. I was. It occurred to me we were reading many long-winded German philosophers, and especially in the English translation, they would write these sentences that took up half the page. And um, I finally realized that they were just making this up. And I was starting to question why I should believe them. And then I read a book by Piaget called Biology and Knowledge that really made the case that we could understand many of these same issues that that the German philosophers were addressing through science. And I think that book, as I reflect on it, had... um, probably had the biggest impact on my decision to embrace the scientific method as the best path to truth and beauty. Truth and beauty was kind of a catchphrase for what we did at St. John's. Yes. And then, um, so that was one thing. And then my senior year, I wrote, I wrote my senior thesis on Kurt Gödel's undecidability and incompleteness theorems. And that introduced me to the idea of, uh, well, to the field of mathematical logic and, and the idea of computable numbers and kind of the theory, some of the theory behind our, our computational theories today. And that kind of led me into the University of Michigan, and there I met John Holland, and I guess he kind of finished the job because he was so passionate about research ideas yes. and so dismissive and uncaring about... I don't know, material rewards and academic accolades. And, you know, I think that's one of the things I really took from John, I think, was that stay true to your own ideas message. Yes, and and, and I think many of us who have been influenced by him as a, as a professor, as a teacher, have, have, have taken that away. And I... And and it seems to me maybe I've already heard it, but it, you know, in, in the book, a whole new engineer, Mark Somerville, and I talk a lot about unleashing experiences. And when you were talking about St. John's, I I often think of St. John's as a school that's gotten the sort of unleashing kind of bit about education right for a really long time. And I I, I heard uh, current and past uh, tutors at St. John's applauding as you as you described it, but but. Maybe we haven't heard the whole the whole story. So we're interested in these unleashing experiences. Are there are there other experiences or personal influences or persons that gave you? You know, you've gone your own way. You've done stuff that was not conventional in many ways. Um, what uh, what who who or what gave you the courage to do that? Well, I do think St. John's um, was huge. In part, you not only do you read the great books. But you're um, you're not supposed to look at secondary sources. So right from the very beginning of your freshman year, you're supposed to read these incredibly deep and difficult books, and you're supposed to come to class prepared to say in a literate and uh, persuasive, logical way what you think the books are about. And you're supposed to do that without uh, reading the cliff notes or... I mean, maybe students today look things up on Wikipedia, but we didn't have that when I went there. And so I think I I really felt that that St. John's education taught me how, forced me, I guess, forced, didn't teach me. It forced me to learn how to think for myself. And I have to say that is something that I try to pass on to my students 
um, at least the Ph.D. students. I require all my students to find their own dissertation topics, which was something we had to do at Michigan, but I think in the modern world of science, there's so much emphasis on getting students graduated quickly and getting more papers written that many professors tend to skip that step. And um, I have really tried to hold, hold true to that because in the end, I think that is the most valuable thing that education can give you. Yeah. Beautiful. And, and uh, yeah, and I hadn't thought about uh, the challenges of Wikipedia for uh, a St. John's education in, in uh, current days. They tell people not to read books, but uh, sort of hard not to, uh, okay, don't look at, don't look that concept up on Google. It's, uh, that, that, that's an interesting secondary question. So uh, we're going to talk, we're going to spend some time in the show. Um, this is a bit of a departure. And actually, I, I hope it's a departure that I, uh, do more of, uh, you know, so I, I was grounded in complex systems and even before that uh, fluid mechanics and, and um, so sort of shielded the show from those interests uh, sticking to the knitting of higher education. But uh, the more I've done work in helping bring about change in higher education, it seems to me that especially the complex systems uh, way of thinking about systems as is sort of deeply embedded in how how I approach things and how I think about things, and so I'm hoping that this becomes more of a regular feature on on the show. But we're going to be talking during the show about complex systems and complex adaptive systems. Um, from your perspective, Stephanie, what what should our audience know about these things? How can you describe this to um, the humanities professors and and professors in fields uh, that are not, uh, or, or even the even the the STEM professors who um, are not familiar with them? Well, I I think the first thing is that so many of the problems that we are interested in today, and the challenges that we face as a society, you know, from climate change to political stability in certain parts of the world, to containing terrorist threats, any, any of these things, or to fighting cancer. These are all problems that cannot be tackled by the traditional reductionist program, the idea that you can take a system and divide it into increasingly smaller pieces until you get a, get the pieces down to small enough parts that you can comprehend them and describe them and, and understand them. And then uh, through understanding all those parts, somehow understand the whole. And that was really the, the scientific paradigm for hundreds of years until, um, until we started running into these systems that once you take them apart and look at the individual pieces, you somehow cannot account or predict the overall behavior. And I guess I think that is the, the first thing about complex systems. And then the second piece that you and I are interested in, and that I think is certainly related to any system that involves people, is that if the pieces of the system are also evolving and changing and, and trying to optimize their own performance in, in response to what the other pieces of the system are doing or in response to something else from the environment, um, that just adds additional complexity, not to reuse that word, and yep. makes systems harder to harder to understand from a structural decomposition point of view. Yeah, no, I and I like I, I really like 
the things that you said, and it's uh, hard to wrap your head around it. And one of the things that one of the, we have a lot of respect on the show for calling out uh, polarity. Sometimes when you say, "Well, we're not the, we're not going to do the reductionist program," it's not like reductionism is worthless. It's still very powerful, and but it's it's by itself is not enough. And so on on this show, we sometimes we um, use uh, Barry Johnson's framework of polarities. There there are lots of uh, pole. So thinking of things as complex and intertwined does not mean that we don't think of them as decomposed and, and, and having parts and complex, complex systems and a complex adaptive systems recognize both of those, but we embrace, we embrace the polarity. You know, sometimes on the show, people will say, well, Dave, your whole new engineer is calling out engineers that won't be able to build, you know, be kind of fuzzy minded and not be able to build bridges. Nothing could be further from the truth. We embrace that kind of technical rigor and other things. And I think the same thing's true about uh, complex systems. Comment? Well, I, I guess I completely agree um, that it's not, if you think of whatever your favorite reductionist example is in, from science, it's not as if those things aren't true. They yes. are just not by themselves sufficient to explain the phenomena. And I, th- and I guess I think the reason it's so relevant today is that um, somewhat through the Internet and somewhat through air travel and lots of other things, so many of the problems we face are, are global in scale. Yes. And, and I, you know, honestly, I think that's what a lot of these political debates are. I don't want to talk politics. You hope you don't either, but, you know, <laughs> I, I think that's, I think that's what our political, our political processes and our leaders and our institutions are struggling with, even if they don't exactly have the language to, to express it that way, yes. or they choose to express it in some other way. No, there's a wickedness to the problems that we're trying to solve. And, and when you look at, you know, political parties get stuck in in the polls that have made them successful, and have trouble embracing the companion polls that would, um, you know. So it's so we we tend to we tend to go from the good stuff of a given poll, individual uh, versus say the collective. Um, uh, we go from the good stuff of individualism to the bad stuff of individualism. Then we look to collectivism as the solution to that, where it's not kind of one or the other. It's sort of there's good stuff in both, and how do we how do we design systems that embrace the good stuff of both poles and and uh, do that do that effectively? And you're right. I don't want to. Although I do, I, I agree with you that and and it would um, the this political system in particular is. Uh, Calling out some of the inadequacies of a polar approach to um, um, to politics, uh, I'm just um, you know this. Uh, I, I was thinking about as you were talking before too. I was thinking we were talking about human beings in the loop, and I, we had uh, Adam Kahane on the the show who's done really very nice uh, consulting work and uh, scenario planning kind of work and uh, social so many difficult problems that involve people and he his decomposition of complexity is to talk about social complexity technical complexity and generative complexity and i, I like that especially the the last piece of that is like it brings in the evolution where we don't these systems are evolving and we don't know where they're going and there are lots of surprises in mind and our ability to predict our our ability to plan and predict is limited by the complexity of the system 
Yes, absolutely. And I guess the only thing I would add to that is that um, those three kinds of complexities, which I should have written down because they immediately went out of my brain, um, (laughs) they're they're interlinked, like the social and the technical. And so one of the things I'm very interested in in my own work right now is thinking about how the um, social, political aspects of cybersecurity interact with the technical. And and I really I, I think that's a quintessential complex systems problem. You know, the it's it's not one or the other, and it's it's not like you can glue you know glue the social political piece onto the technical piece. I truly think they interact, and um, and we don't have good tools for understanding that. Yeah. Why don't we, uh, I want to come back, I want to ask you, uh, uh, you just gave a talk uh, in, in memory of John Holland, it's uh, almost the first anniversary of his passing, and I want to uh, get some, uh, after the break, get some um, uh, some remembrance of John, what, what you remember, we were um, in class, in a class of his, together, a couple of classes of his together, I want to get your take on, and you've already said some things about it, but why don't we take a break and, and we'll come back. This is Big Beacon Radio with our special guest, uh, Stephanie Forrest from the University of New Mexico. Uh, stay with us, and the next uh, segment we'll start by uh, uh, remembering uh, John H. Holland. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. Uh, and uh, the second segment is sponsored by 3Joy Associates. Get the training, coaching, and change leadership consultation that will help transform your educational institution or organization at 3joy.com. And before the break, we were talking with Stephanie Forrest from 
uh, the University of New Mexico and the Santa Fe Institute, and we were talking about complex systems, complex adaptive systems, and we want to continue that conversation. And uh, let's uh, let's start in with uh, a common personage. You, you and I met as students of uh, John Holland. I think, if I, my memory serves, it was in the fall of 1980, which uh, was just to, I don't even want to do the math, but I think my memory is correct and that uh, uh, that's when we met as part of his uh, adaptive systems course. And uh, you just gave a talk at the Genetic and Evolutionary Computation Conference in Denver in honor of John. And I'm just uh, curious, uh, uh, what, are, um, what are some of the things that you remember about uh, um, uh, John that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I wrote down, I didn't actually end up saying this in the talk, but I wrote down four things that I wanted to say, and then I have a, a one more thing that, that I'll add after that. But, And I don't know, Dave, what you'll think about this. I'd be curious. But okay. the four things I thought of were, first of all, John had a very clear research aesthetic. Yes. He knew what kinds of systems he was interested in and what he was interested in about them, and he and and he communicated that to his students, I think, informally and intuitively. But I, I feel that's something that I try to work on with my students is kind of what the research aesthetic is in our group. That's one thing. The second thing, John was interested in everything, Don't, wouldn't you say? I never, I never really found anything that John couldn't find some interesting piece of. And and one side effect of that was he would talk to absolutely anyone, and he was exactly the same person, whether he was talking, I wasn't ever there, I don't even know if he talked to the Queen of England, but he might have, but he would talk to her, and I was there when he spoke with Al Gore, and he talked to Al Gore exactly the way he would talk to some beginning graduate student at a genetic algorithms conference who came up and, you know, grabbed his sleeve at a coffee break. And, yeah. and I really, I really admired that, um, that he was just interested in everyone and, and kind of a generous personality, yeah. very giving of his ideas. And then I guess the other thing that he used to talk about that I, I try to hold on to, although people make fun of it sometimes, is the idea of serious fun. You know, that these ideas that we're exploring, they're nuanced and they're complex and we don't really know where we're going. And you have to play with them a bit before, before things gel out and, and the right approach reveals itself. And, and I always thought, you know, that, that was what John liked the most about science was that piece of it. Was the fun, yeah. Yeah. And then I guess I want to say one thing. Excuse me. Um, sure. One thing a little bit more concrete. He was always ahead of his time. And when I look back in the era when people were very interested in computers as models of thinking, that is the artificial intelligence era, John was interested and open to ideas in biology and sociology and other fields, but biology in particular. Similarly, in the 1980s, when you and I were in graduate school, John was interested in statistical learning, while everybody else was interested in expert systems. And then also during that period in the 90s, he was really promoting what today I think um, the buzzword is computational thinking. Yes. 
but he was always promoting that at a time when computer science was really trying to act like engineering. Trying to, most computer science departments were moving into engineering schools and starting to adopt the uh, success metrics of, of engineers and trying to turn the field into a, a discipline of engineering. And at that time, John was promoting computational thinking. Each of these things, I mean, he was at least a decade ahead of everybody else. Yeah. Same with interdisciplinary. You know, he was interested in interdisciplinary research and teaching, you know, well before you and I got to Michigan. And that was a time when science, all the sciences were becoming increasingly specialized. And then at the time when he died, he was still um, advocating mechanistic-based, agent-based modeling as as a way to understand behavior and, and systems at a time when everybody in my field is all hepped up on, on big data and statistical correlations. And so... Even at the time he died, I still think he was probably a decade ahead of the rest of the scientific world. Yeah. What a, yeah, what a, I, I don't know that I want to, well, you asked me what I thought I, you know, so, you know, so I just uh, have, I'm nodding my head with you. I, and I liked your, uh, so you're the Johnny and you uh, brought the beauty from the truth and beauty to uh, the first point. And, and uh, I, I didn't think of it that way, but I, um, but there is a sense of, um, I guess I, I've when I've talked about it, I've talked about it in term. He was a great storyteller, you know. Sometimes, so he told, and and the way he went about science was he kind of put pieces. He had pieces, but then to integrate them together, he sort of told a story around them. And I remember, you know, in the eighties, being uh, drawn into the story of learning classifier systems, and and then say. Promising to do that for my dissertation, I say, "Okay, well, John, where's the working system, and uh, and, and and where and where's the code?" And and um, but the story was so compelling that I, I, you know, I ended up having to write my own code to do the little bit that I did. But um, but his stories um, that the he story, wove were yeah. so. Pardon. His stories were, were so compelling. They were compelling, and, and, and you know, Leishon Booker. I always remember this. Leishon Booker said one time, "John's almost always right about <laughs> you know what what needs to be done or what's possible, yeah. but he's never right about how long it's going to take." <laughs> <laughs> and I think you and I both discovered that in our dissertations. Yeah. Yeah, well, and and uh, and there and any and none of what I said was resentment for being drawn into it either. It was uh, it's like uh, it it was a it was a a web that was woven, and you were grateful to be drawn into the web, and and then have and and it was your job to crawl uh, crawl out. I think some of what you were saying before about unleashing the Johnny experience and and um, the sense of being able to do it on your own and the confident the confidence and courage. Um, um, John manage if manage is even the right word is uh, actually much too strong. His students in that way it was like he trust he trusted you to be able to go off and do it, and, and even if it was darn hard, it was uh, um, he he figured you know he, he liked good ideas. If your ideas were good and aligned with the things that he was interested in, he was uh, he was leading you. He was cheerleading you on, but not necessarily ever telling you what the next step was. Yes, I I often say to my students, and again, I got this 
from, I mean, the other side of it, I guess, is the benign neglect theory, which I've been accused of. <laughs> and we certainly accuse John of that from time to time. But yeah. what I tell my students is that I expect them to be full intellectual agents. And that yeah. means they need to be dragging me in, in new directions, kicking and screaming, as I am sometimes. And I think that's how John treated us. And and I guess I valued my education that I received from him so much, I've tried in my own way to emulate it here at New Mexico. Yeah. Stephanie, we've done a lot, and, and uh, we could go on talking the whole uh, uh, two two more segments about John, and 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 uh, that wouldn't be a bad thing. But I think we've got some other good stuff to talk about as well. Um, you've been an academic leader. You um, you were a department head at uh, New Mexico in computer science. You were an interim v- VP at the Santa Fe Institute. Uh, tell us about the Santa Fe Institute. Some of our listeners may not know about it. What what's that organization about? SF, well, we refer to the Santa Fe Institute by its um, acronym, SFI, or yep. its abbreviation, I guess. And it's, uh, just to tell you what it is, it's located in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and it's a huge reason why I live in New Mexico. It's a small, nonprofit, private research institute that is devoted, and this, I don't know how helpful this will be, to the sciences of complexity. And 30 years ago, when SFI was started up and John, was, um, John Holland was an early founder and involved in those early discussions, no one really knew what the sciences of complexity meant. And I'm not sure that we exactly know what they mean today. I think we know a few things more than we knew then. But it's, it's just had enormous influence. There's now institutions around the world that are also devoted to the sciences of complexity. There's academic programs at a lot of uh, prestigious universities. And if anything, I think the word complexity is overused in, in the vernacular, in, in everyday scientific conversation. But SFI is still interested in the sciences of complexity. And, and I guess what, what went with that was a realization that that we could not tackle these problems from the viewpoint of a single discipline. And so early on, the conversations at SFI were about bringing together people from different disciplines, asking them to tackle these very hard questions that that occur in many different fields and try to come up with generic solutions, that is, uh, general solutions that would apply in multiple fields, and to try, try to really get at what all these different kinds of complex systems have in common. Yeah. And so, and you get a sense of, so it's, um, it's been a while since I visited the Institute, but um, how many uh, permanent staff, how many uh, visiting staff, what's sort of the scale of, and its influence goes beyond on its size and the actual body count, but what, uh, what, right. can you so there's some really sense? two, there's two parts of SFI, the part that's in residence and, than the much, much, much larger network of connections throughout the world. And SFI is primarily still a visiting institution. So people come in from all over the world, and they spend anything from a few hours to a few years. And once they leave, they're still somehow a member of this, um, this network of researchers. But on the ground, there 
is space, I think, I'm making this up because it's been a few years since I worried about such things. <clears throat> There's space for about 50 researchers at a time. Sure. And in the summer, it's packed to the gills. There's probably more than 50 people there on some days. Yep. And in the winter, during the academic year, it's not quite as crowded. And a little bit depends if there's research conferences going on or whatever. But that's sure. roughly the scale of it. Yeah. And and that's quite a bit larger. You know, 25 years ago when John was very active um, at the Institute, it was much smaller. Yes. There were, I think, originally there were three semi-permanent researchers and then a slew of postdocs and sure. day trippers like me who live yeah, in the just area and drive just drive up, up from Albuquerque. Yeah. yeah. So um, and so um, and as you say, the, it's had a terrific influence on people's thinking and and actually, you know, one of the things I've there's a certain sense in when you when you go off and do this and and start. Uh, you have categories and new labels of things that previously didn't exist. Part of what you're doing is giving permission to people to spend spend their time uh, in doing those things, and 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 that's that's super important. It's essentially a cultural kind of shift that you're making when you when you establish outposts like like that, and and you you allow people to talk about things that previously didn't um, talk and think, and uh, about things that didn't have a um, didn't have a place. Yes, uh, I guess I can characterize that um, that success in the early years, and I w- I think I was part of this, and John was part of this to some extent. SFI attracted people who were misfits in their home disciplines and their home institutions, and in a way, they they gravitated to SFI out of a sense of desperation. Finally, there's someone I can talk to. Yes. And, and a lot of these people weren't, by routine academic standards, they weren't particularly successful. I mean, John was successful, but many others were not. And then at some point, and this, I think, totally reflects SFI's success, people became interested in coming to SFI because it would be good for their career. And that, you know, that, that was a major... I think a major transition and and, and major uh, success for SFI, and so now it's really known throughout the world as um, kind of the mecca for the study of complex systems. Yeah, with all due respect to the other institutes that have grown up. Sure, um, and we're actually uh, this is our conference. I'm just enjoying this so much, and and. Um, and some of the things that I'd hoped we would be able to talk about, uh, we may or may not. But um, I think we need to take. I think we need to take another break. Um, in the in the final segment, um, you just gave a talk at Gecko at the Genetic and Evolutionary Computation Conference about the biology of software. I think we want to talk about that, and then I want to spend a little bit of the last segment talking about the implications of complex adaptive systems thinking for higher education. And I and I mean a couple of different ways of of thinking about that, and I want to do that. So let's uh, let's take a break, and we'll come back after the break and and do those two things. This is Big Beacon Radio with our 
uh, special guest, Stephanie Forrest from the University of New Mexico and the Santa Fe Institute, or SFI. And, and in the final segment, we're going we're gonna to talk about her uh, uh, plenary talk at GECCO, as well as uh, what are some of the implications of complex adaptive systems for higher ed. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1 866 472 5790. Again, that's 1 866 472 5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. And uh, to advertise on this show and reach some of the most committed reformers and transformers in education today, write to me, Dave Goldberg, at deg at bigbeacon.org to reach your audience today. In the last segment... Um, uh, we were continued to talk a, a little bit about John Holland and and uh, and some of the institutional um, some of the institutions, in particular the Santa Fe Institute and and its its influence on complex uh, complex systems and complex adaptive systems. So, Stephanie, this year you were asked to give a talk um, honoring uh, John Holland at uh, the Genetic and Evolutionary Computation Conference. And it was entitled The Biology of Software. And in the abstract of the talk, you say, we have much to gain by viewing software through the lens of biology. Um, what, what can you tell our listeners about what you meant by that? Well, let's see. I'm trying to think of how to start. I guess I'll start by saying that, that much of my research career has focused, in addition to model, modeling biological problems, has focused on two important computer science problems, what we now call cybersecurity, and more recently, the problem of how to automatically repair software bugs. And, and so why, do I, why am I interested in these problems? I think they're quintessential complex systems problems. Neither, neither of these problems is well addressed by conventional engineering methods. And I guess what I think I bring to the table is 
a biological perspective. And so that, I don't know if that actually answers the question, so maybe I should give you an example. Let's start with cybersecurity. Okay. Why do I think biology can help with cybersecurity? Well, biological systems have had to cope with adversaries, you know, ever since the very beginning. And so awesome. ever since yeah. they started evolving, they have had to evolve defense systems to protect themselves. And at this point, those systems are pervasive. They're in every biological system you might consider. They're multi-level. That is, they occur, you know, in the genome all the way up to at the species level and ecological level. And in many cases, they are extraordinarily complex. And why are they complex? I guess that's one good question I have. But I, I personally think that looking at biology, at, at how biology solves these defense problems, can give us, give us new ideas for how to think about cybersecurity and cyber defenses. Yeah, so one example of this is in in your work, and this isn't the only example of the defense systems, but immune systems are one example of a natural system that uh, is highly evolved uh, against adversaries out in the world. Yes, and so just, you know, we don't necessarily take all of immunology, so one of the first things we did that had impact was build the first... Um, what I like to say, the first practical anomaly intrusion detection system for computers. And that was um, quite a while ago when I was an assistant professor. But we thought of doing it, and we designed our system based on what we knew about how the immune system worked. Because the immune system, after all, doesn't just protect you against the diseases you've been vaccinated against. It's very good, and I'm hoping this cold that I have while I'm talking to you, <laughs> that <laughs> sure. my immune system is, is de- developing its defenses quickly. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's very good at responding to um, novel, novel pathogens. And sometimes it takes a while. That's why we're sick. But I like to, I often say that biology is the true science of security. And... Um, Therefore, when and that's a little bit of a play on a play on the current idea of having a science of security for cybersecurity, and I, that anomaly intrusion detection system was just the first of of many things we've explored sure. over my career. So that's one example. Then the the other the other problem that has attracted a lot of your attention has been um, bugs in software. So yes. how to how do complex systems help us there? Well, I guess direct, most directly, we have discovered that we can use a genetic algorithm to automatically search for repairs to bugs. And that, that's a pretty surprising thing, and that's a subject of a complete talk in and of itself. In and of itself, and of course, yeah. we're gonna, we're, we've got but to give a one, short shrift. In but the, I just want to say one quick yeah. thing. Sure. So, I, you know, I went into this project just thinking it would be fun to try, but not really thinking it would work. And so then when we got some good results, I was immediately suspicious and wanted to know why it was working. And the reason it works, I think, is just fascinating. It turns out that software, the software we have today, these are the programs that we're probably using to talk to each other with, um, has a very biological property known as, as mutational robustness. And it turns out that about 30% of the time when we make 
um, are random mutations to programs, it doesn't change their behavior in a discernible way. And that's, that's just a remarkable property of software, so remarkable that we had a hard time getting it published. But I think once, once the rest of the community gets it, I think it's going to lead to all kinds of interesting innovations. Nice. And so, you know, so these are, these are practical ways in which we can use uh, ideas from biology to um, help create systems that um, make our lives better, improve security or improve, uh, um, Im- improve software, fix bugs in software um, without as much human intervention. And, um, and I, I want to switch now for the last few minutes of our, our time together and the, you know the show is largely about higher education, and one of the things that I've sort of underestimated in my work in in higher ed and trying to bring about cultural and deep emotional um, change um, in higher ed is the degree to which it too is a complex adaptive system, and how much the work that I did early in my career on evolutionary systems and complex adaptive systems more generally is helpful in thinking about, um, thinking about higher ed, but it, but I think it's more, I think there's more to it than that. So, so there's a, there, there are complex assist, co- complex adaptive systems as important content for the education of the future. Um, complex adaptive systems as inspiration for solutions to some of these yucky problems that we were talking about that are out in the world that everyone's having a having trouble solving um and i'm i'm kind of putting this out there but as as in your life um as you think about these things which of these these approaches and ways of thinking about complex adaptive systems resonate for you most in in the educational space well i guess i guess there's two things i might say i I mean, I, I don't think that we could go, go to the Santa Fe Institute and say, how should we fix higher ed, and walk out with a little three-step plan. Of course not. So, um, you know, it, it's a complex problem and probably has a complex solution. But the two things I thought of were, first of all, I feel today in higher ed, the system is, is being highly stressed. And part of that is because the social contract that, supported public education and research in this country is being challenged and and probably being rewritten. And, you know, lack of state funding and and then moving the cost to tuition and then people noticing that uh, charging students a lot of money has other consequences. Also problems with the research funding uh, pipeline, which is another part of modern universities. Those are all putting huge stresses on the system. And what we know from biology is that when systems are stressed like that, their mutation rates go up. And so I think we're starting, starting to see people trying out a wide variety of radical kinds of, of ideas. And, you know, Arizona State's maybe the, one of the more famous of those examples, but sure. I think we're all struggling in the university system with... Uh, what kind of changes can we make? And we have no way of knowing whether our particular mutations will be successful or unsuccessful. But I think taking the lesson from biology, we sort of have no choice but to try them. So that's one comment. 
Yes. I guess uh, the other comment I have is that it's extremely frustrating if you want to be a reformer in, in higher education or any other institution because these systems are so resistant to change. Mm. And that, of course, fits right into my... I yep. often refer, refer to this as an immune response. But I do think as system, one, one thing we do know from biology is that as systems scale up in size, the overhead that is devoted to regulating the system and, and protecting the system, like the immune system and the vascular system, those, those overheads grow faster than the size of the system. So it should not be surprising to us that large universities have even larger administrations, and, and that's true of all institutions, I think. So that, that insight for me personally, on, on, on some days, makes me more tolerant of, uh, <laughs> yes. of the bureaucratic frustrations I, I incur in my, in my daily life. Well, and, and, but I think that that's really, that's really interesting and, and a very interesting way to say it. And, and, uh, of course, um, in, in, we're actually sort of shifting and there are, you know, analogs between biological system, biological evolution and cultural evolution. There are a lot of, there are a lot of connections and much of what's, what the wiring in an educational system is, is cultural. It's not, it's not uh, physical, biological, but it's but it's nonetheless. There's a wiring, and and part of part of what gives it its its power are are people's beliefs, and in particular their intentionality, their stance towards the the system, and how they how they think about it, and and how they interact with it, and those things as uh, many of the models of change and how you go about organizational change specifically uh, actually call. Um, uh, use immune system kinds of analogs to say that you know there there are there are forces that are protecting the system from from those invasive changes. Yeah. Thoughts? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You said it very nicely. I don't have anything to add. You don't have anything that. else. Good. Okay. Well. Okay. I don't want to sort of. I'll try to be more um, controversial. I guess I'm curious. You know, you've been a leader, and and uh, and so one of the th- one of the things I'm struck about struck with is the ways in which complex systems thinking sort of affects my thinking as a a leader. So you were department head. You were um, interim VP. Um, what are are there ways in uh, ways in which uh, your sort of individual behavior as a leader has been guided by complex adaptive systems thinking? Well, per, I guess personally, uh, what I've learned from my science that I apply in my leadership roles when I have them, I, I guess I would say it's a humility in the sense that I'm a much bigger believer in making, let's say, a directed mutation. Let's say making, making the best guess about a change that will work or trying something and then if it doesn't pan out, being willing to admit I'm wrong and try something else. And I think that's much more realistic than what many leaders do, which is say, I have a top-down strategic plan, and I know that if we follow this, we will be successful. Yes. So I, I do believe in the evolutionary approach to life. I, also, I guess I also wanted to say one thing I often tell people about students usually about complex systems research, I think does apply to thinking about it at an institutional level, which is that ideas like chaos and emergence and evolution 
are extremely compelling at the surface level. And people get interested in them and pick them up and, and try to apply them in their own lives. But I really feel that the science of complexity is kind of like having a quarter inch of topsoil on a layer of granite. You know, it's really easy to get those those surface ideas and to make a little bit of progress. But once you get through those surface analogies, you know, to dig into the granite, you, you either need to find little cracks in the rocks, which is kind of my approach, look for a place where you can make some progress. Yes. Or you need a gigantic jackhammer. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I do feel that the ideas are super appealing intuitively. And then going beyond, beyond that surface level is just extraordinarily challenging. And, and that's why the Santa Fe Institute is still in business. And I expect we'll be in business for another 35 or 40 years. Yeah. So we've just got uh, about another minute or so left. Uh, um, what, would it, what else would you like people to know about your work? And, and, uh, and, and then at the end of that, what, uh, where can they get in touch with you if they are interested in your writing or your speaking or things like that? Well, I guess there's uh, <clears throat> excuse me, two things I'd like to say. One is I feel so fortunate in my career that I have had the freedom to work on pretty much anything I wanted to pursue. And that, that has been so important to me to be able to follow my own nose. I mean, you asked a lot about why I was able to do it. But a huge piece of that that I should have mentioned is, you know, this early grant from the National Science Foundation, which I think you had too, the Presidential Young Investigator Award, the yep. um, being at a university that tolerated um, some, you know, academically, socially deviant ideas, and and those things have been incredibly important to me, and and I I worry that our next generation of students may not have the same yeah. kind of freedom and autonomy that I've had. Yeah. Need to um, wrap up, so where, yeah. how can people get in, get in touch with you? Well, I have a website that's semi-up-to-date, um, forest at cs.unm.edu, and um, if you just go to the University of New Mexico's computer science department, I'm pretty easy to find. Great. Stephanie, thanks thanks so much for joining us. Uh, loved loved uh, catching up in this way, and, and um, best wishes uh, uh, with the uh, uh, with your future success. Great. Thank you so much, Dave. I, it was a real privilege, privilege to be on the show. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. Special thanks to our, our guest, Stephanie Forrest from the University of New Mexico and the Santa Fe Institute. Help transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at bigbeacon.org. Join us next week, same time, same channel, as we continue our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 